welcome and thank you for joining us for our uh, our incredible seminar today. Today we have Dr. Asafra Morawski and Dr. Alexander Jaffe joining us. And I just wanted to point out to you before I introduce them that if you take a look at your seats, we have programs coming up at here at the Gap Center as well as at universities throughout North America. So please share the programs with your friends. Please let people know that these are happening. It's, it's critical for people to, to hear about them and we'd love to have as many people join us as possible. And also please visit our website. So if you want to hear more lectures, everything including this lecture is being, is being uh, videotaped and we have ISGAF TV on the website and you can listen to uh, uh, all the lectures and uh, some, some, as somebody pointed out to me, soon we'll have them in podcasts as well. So please, please uh, visit our website. Dr. Asafa Murawski is the Executive Director of Scholars for Peace in the Middle East. Trained as a Middle East historian, he, he holds a PhD in Middle East and Mediterranean Studies from King's College London in the UK and has published widely on various aspects of the Arab-Israeli conflict and American foreign policy in the Middle East, as well as on Israeli and Zionist history. Dr. Alexander Jaffe is the Shulman Ginsburg Fellow at the Middle East Forum. Dr. Jaffe is a writer on Israel and Jewish affairs. He's trained as an archaeologist and historian. He holds, he holds a PhD in Near Eastern Studies from the University of Arizona and has participated and directed archaeological research in Israel, Jordan, Greece, and the United States. He has taught at Pennsylvania State University and the State University of New York, and has published over 150 scholarly articles and reviews on archaeology, ancient and modern history, political science, environmental studies, and cultural affairs. Ramorowski and Jaffe are co-authors of Religion, Politics, and the origins of Palestinian refugee relief. And I understand today they'll be speaking as sort of a, a tag team. So I, I welcome them and thank you so much for being here and enjoy. Thanks for having us. Um, we want to talk about, uh, about this new book, um, but um, I want to frame it a little bit, uh, a little bit more broadly. Uh, the, the study is about the uh, the role of the American Friends Service Committee in um, 1949 and 1950 in organizing and providing um, relief to Palestinian refugees in the Gaza Strip. Um, and this is a historically an, an interesting uh, and mostly untold story, um, but it has broader ramifications that I think will be interesting to um, ISGAP, uh, ISGAP members, ISGAP, uh, the ISGAP constituency because it talks to the role of religion and also anti-Semitism in the development of American foreign policy and international affairs in that period and today. Um, the American Friends Service Committee and the, the United Nations program that it was uh, participating in are the precursors to UNRWA, um, the United Nations program that has since 1950 provided uh, relief and much more to Palestinian refugees. And the, the AFSC's 
experience uh, is about roles, uh, is about lessons not learned. Um, and finally, the FSC uh, today has a, a, a leading role in, um, in the BDS movement, Boycott, Investment, and Sanctions movement in the United States. And the, uh, the question of anti-Semitism and the influencing, shaping um, BDS is extremely uh, important. So these are some of the issues that we want to touch on uh, this morning and why it matters and why it matters for the question of anti-Semitism as a whole. <laughs> so we're, we'll do a tag team thing. It's great. So, uh, we keep it a little bit loose. So uh, you know, as Alex mentioned, I mean, uh, really, the story is a um, is a unique story that really uh, we think is uh, the footprint for learning about UN workers' belief agency, which is under today uh, devoted to Palestinian refugees and. Part of what was unique about the Gaza mission and the story that uh, led to uh, the Quaker involvement in the Middle East to begin with uh, was originally from a ideologically a pacifist, euphoric idea of trying to help uh, the Arab Palestinians in the area as a result of what was happening in the world. Historically speaking, um, the Quakers got their mandate from Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, the Quakers uh, were were utilized in the DP camps in the aftermath of World War II. So to have the opportunity, uh, and when they received the opportunity to deal with uh, the Arabs of Palestine, it was too attractive an offer not to get involved. Uh, and what we detail in the story is really their interactions and their personal um, interactions with the Egyptians and with the Arab population itself. Uh, it was uh, uniquely interesting to see the base of operations of the Quakers is Philadelphia, my hometown. Uh, and to kind of see the, the back and forth, the connection between Philadelphia, uh, Lebanon, uh, Beirut uh, in particular, where uh, the base was out of, into Gaza, uh, and really these interactions and, and, and the problems that they came across during the course of their work. Um, interestingly enough, and I think what was really the, the most, one of the more critical aspects uh, for us today, if we, uh, students of history and why it's so critical, obviously, as Alex mentioned, to uh, the ISCAP constituency is to kind of figure out um, what the Quakers learned uh, and what they did uh, really come to the conclusion of why they left the Middle East. The project itself was an 18-month project in Gaza. Uh, and what was interesting about the Quakers in their entire uh, understanding, uh, which was um, Quakerism, for those of you who are not aware, is about less about worshiping than it's more about doing that. Uh, and, and part of the doing aspect, the Quaker, Quakerly way, was helping people uh, reach a level of um, sustainability, ability to uh, rehabilitate themselves, uh, and to actually uh, get to a point where they can become, you know, self-sustained. Uh, this was actually American foreign policy in the Middle East in the 50s and 60s. Uh, reintegration, rehabilitation, and resettlement. Uh, and the Quakers actually came with that understanding that they could help solve uh, the problem of the, uh, of the Arab Palestinians and to actually uh, become uh, fully sustainable 
what happened was, and what's interesting about uh, this entire interaction, that they've come to the conclusion at the end when uh, the UN steps in in the 1950s, is that there was no real interest to actually resolve the problem. Uh, and they come to the conclusion that the United Nations is a bureaucracy that's not going to solve the problem and actually is going to maintain these refugees in their current status. As a result of that, uh, that was the impetus for the Quakers actually leaving the Middle East. Uh, and uh, one can make and one should be making the, un the, um, the, 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 the real understanding that had UNRWA learned from the Quakers anything, they could have learned that the bureaucracy is going to perpetuate the problem and not resolve the problem. And that was uh, one of the few things that I think that, with all the politics and the religiosity involved, from a policy standpoint, uh, that the Quakers understood that there's not going to be a resolution of the problem, even though they tried very hard, but actually a perpetuation of the problem that leads to unrest problems today. Um, it's important to, to emphasize that um, Quakers and Quakerism, Quakerism is a, is a Protestant, a deviant Protestant sect from the, uh, from the 18th century. It's one of the historic peace churches in the United States. They were persecuted in, in England, came to the United States, um, settled primarily in, in Pennsylvania, and the influence on American society and American culture is, is really quite significant and often under understated or, or under um, underappreciated. Uh, they created a network of educational institutions, of, uh, of charitable institutions, and the ideology of charity, the ideology of giving people skills, um, was extremely important to, uh, to Quakerism throughout. But they're also um, pacifists. And um, and they're also the smallest American Protestant sect, uh, historically. And even, I think probably today, they're, they're, all of Protestantism in the United States is very much smaller. So if we're try, to try and understand um, where Quakerism fits into the American Protestant landscape, particularly with respect to anti-Semitism, which shaped their relationship with Israel, and shaped them prior to that, shaped their relationship with Jews, and which shapes their relationship with um, Jews and, and with BDS today. Um, Quakers don't, Quakers believe in, in the divinity of, of Jesus, but they don't have an organized church. They don't have um, an organized ritual uh, set. It's, it's a series of sort of practices but there's no, uh, there's no liturgy and there's no hierarchy. Um, the American Friends Service Committee, which has emerged in the last uh, century as the closest thing to a kind of church that Quakers have, only goes back to 1917, the American involvement in World War I. Prior to, to that, um, Quakers, well, during World War I, Quakers were actually imprisoned because they refused to serve in, in the U.S. military. And, and the service committee was constructed um, by a series of Philadelphia uh, Quaker leaders um, as a means to provide alternate service. They ran ambulance services, they dealt with uh, refugees, 
And in the, uh, at the end of World War I, they were operating uh, really worldwide. And they became, in effect, um, both an early non-governmental organization that had, by the 30s, and certainly by the 40s, enormous, an enormous reputation and enormous influence. But they were never a church. Quakerism then and, was, and is still today organized around local meetings. Um, there's a meeting in this town and that town, and so on, as are, the, as are Mennonites and, and other groups, other peace churches. But um, the, the role of the, a, the AFSC is unique in that coming out of World War II, when they were active um, both during and after the war, particularly in Europe, dealing with uh, millions of displaced persons, they were active in, um, in, in Asia, um, also in South America. They had an enormous reputation as effective, um, non-partisan, non-political deliverers of aid and deliverers of skills. And their emphasis was skills. They were, unlike other Protestant um, sects, their orientation was absolutely not towards missionizing. Now, having said that, um, like all other Protestant sects, they were very active um, in the Middle East, creating institutions going back to the beginning of the 19th century, or first half of the 19th century, creating um, schools and hospitals in particular. But um, they were very unsuccessful converting anyone to Quakerism. And in general, um, Protestant missionaries in the Middle East were extremely unsuccessful converting anybody to Quaker, uh, to Protestantism, um, except for Eastern Christians, who found it um, advantageous to become Protestants, as opposed to uh, because that, that put them under the aegis of Western powers, Britain, France, Germany, and Russia in particular. No, not Russia. Sorry, it's Orthodox Church, but. Um, so the, the Quakers are an anomaly in that, in that respect. They're non-political. Um, they're non-missionizing. And that gave them a great deal of, of a relationship with, with Jews because they were very active in, in Europe in the DP camps, as some said, after the, after the war. Um, and they were very active in the United States as well, uh, in the uh, Appalachia in the 1930s. Um, but in 1947, they win the Nobel Prize, the, the AFSC and their British counterparts, um, British Society of Friends. And that um, raises the bar for them. And it begins a process of, the, of, one might say, the AFSC becoming something like a church or a mothership for the Quaker movement in America. And it begins the process of converting the Quakers to what they are today, which is on the one hand a very small, very conventional Protestant sect um, that is outwardly much more like, or ideologically, much more like other Protestant sects, and also um, converting them to become a conventional left-wing pressure group. And so in 1947, they win the Nobel Prize, and this sucks them into um, on the one hand, the Gaza Relief Project, um, by means of what they call religious diplomacy, trying to negotiate uh, a ceasefire in Jerusalem, sending a somewhat misguided mission to, um, to 
see uh, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, then resident in Cairo, to, to try and find an ecumenical common ground for uh, between Muslims and, and Christians. In a sense, it's, it's a kind of very early Abrahamic religions ideology, the idea of Abrahamic religions that we all share Father Abraham and therefore have some sort of religious and moral ideological commonality has very much become a, a thing in the last generation or so. Um, not necessarily with a, a strong foundation, um, factual foundation. Um, but the other thing they became involved with in the aftermath of World War II and in the aftermath of their Nobel Prize in 1947 is um, the Cold War and the cause of disarmament. This is a very important part of the story. They thought their leaders thought. And that by that I mean the leaders of the AFSC. Again, yeah, it's not a church. They don't have a, they don't have a, a hierarchy of, of bishops and archbishops and popes and whatnot. They have lay leaders um, in Philadelphia who decided um, that it, the Cold War was so important and so dangerous and so threatening to the planet that they had to put aside their tradition of political neutrality and advocate for um, peaceful relations between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, then the U.S. and China, and, um, and nuclear disarmament. And, these different strands in their practice, in their ideology, um, pacifism becoming disarmament, becoming a kind of left-wing left -wing ideology, a long and very distinguished tradition of uh, relief work around the world, um, really coming to an end in, in Gaza um, when they encountered the Palestinian um, issue. Um, and the tradition of, of uh, the AFSC as the emerging tradition, the AFSC as a kind of mothership for, for Quakers. And from the 1950s onward, the causes of disarmament, the causes of the Cold War, became their central <coughs> focal points. Um, and have shaped, and, and, and which by the 1960s, uh, turn the AFSC into a very conventional pacifist organization uh, that was adamantly opposed to the Vietnam War, adamantly opposed to um, the American role in the world generally, overall uh, favorably inclined towards the Soviet Union and towards uh, the People's Republic of China, which set them up for 1967, um, when the world changed and their world, the, the world of Quakers and the F AFSC changed yet again. Those fun times. Those fun times. Uh, well, just uh, you know, um, one more point to go back to, I think, which is also uh, valuable to understand. I mean, the aspect of religious diplomacy, which has really become their uh, their frontier agenda, the uh, and really related to their uh, anti-Semitism that played out within within this uh, dynamic itself. Um, so the pacifism is also what led them to believe uh, in disarmament at large, 
to the neutrality that they had or believed that they have when it comes to the Middle East at large. I mean, there was a proposal made even early on uh, that the Quakers would actually govern and it would be a Quaker mayor of Jerusalem as a result of the fact that uh, the three monotheistic religions should be governed by pacifism because they know how to deal with it. Uh, what Alex mentioned you know, earlier about the, uh, the Mufti is very critical. Uh, it was the first time that the Quakers came uh, to the realization that um, some Muslim leaders are really, uh, and specifically the Mufti, uh, were not sincere about their religiosity, but their political ideologues, and there was no room for compromise. So the whole idea that religious diplomacy playing out within their mentality, and that they, the fact that they could govern Jerusalem and the center of all these issues, uh, they left very disillusioned uh, when they met with the Mufti. And they, they came to really uh, a realization that they had, a, you know, this was not going to work out uh, in, uh, in the way they wanted to work. Now, let me just interject one, one thing, uh, an amusing, actually a quite horrifying anecdote. Um, they came away from this interview with the Mufti kind of down crestfallen a little bit. Um, in 1940, uh, their leaders had an interview with Reinhard Heydrich, the head of the Reich's main security office um, in Berlin. And um, they came out of that meeting um, thinking that they had softened the hearts of their Nazi um, counterparts. Um, so strong was their, their tradition of being non-political, and so strong was their confidence in themselves at, at that point, that they, that they could go into and talk to Nazis. Now, it, it speaks something about their cachet, that they could even get in the door to talk to um, a Nazi like Heidegger. And it speaks to their neutrality that they continue to do work with Jews and others in, in France right up until um, 1941, and in Spain later on. But um, it's a funny sort of it's a funny sort of mentality. And it be, when they began to hit the wall in 1949 and 1950, and encountered things that they had never encountered before, like the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. And then the actual refugee experience in Gaza, where they encountered refugees with the likes of which they had never seen before anywhere. This is was frankly a shock to them. And, and really, that that that's really the, the, you know it was more you know the the correlation of religiosity and politics, which we all know very much embedded within the Arab-Palestinian narrative. Uh, is exactly the point that, that Alex is making, you know, which is really what the shocker of how to even deal with the Arab population. I mean, you know, this was where they, for example, encountered uh, and really the colorful interactions between Gaza and Philadelphia about um, the double counting of, of Palestinians, the inflation of numbers, uh, the lying. I mean, this was all part of something they were trying to figure out how we can deal with this and work within what they defined as normal Quaker clients more or less when you're looking at you know, what, what they had to deal with in Europe, and here they are dealing with this newfound environment. Uh, it's also interesting uh, not to, to think uh, you know, on this, on exactly this, exactly this time uh, in the 40s and 50s about Jewish involvement. Uh, the Quakers also had uh, some Jews involved with them, uh, sponsored by the Ford Foundation. Uh, and actually, the Ford Foundation is actually, you know, if you fast forward to the environment today, obviously, is one of the uh, helping support some of the BDS activity vis-a-vis -vis the Quakers today. But it started back then, uh, and namely individuals, uh, you know, who are uh, 
uh, at the time, people like Don Peretz, who was a, um, a, a um, now in his late 90s, uh, was a professor at Binghamton for many, many years. Uh, Peretz was a, uh, on a um, grant of the Ford Foundation working for the Quakers, uh, was acting as a journalist, uh, and actually was smuggled out of the seat of Jerusalem and reporting for the Quakers and writing pieces about the Quakers and Quakers' initiatives. Uh, it was interesting that even in those interactions between the Quakers and Jews, uh, and Parrots as a liberal Zionist individual were seen as a threat. Uh, you know, we've come across uh, in you know comments about the fact, well, he's too Zionist. He can't be pacifist. He can't be neutral in his mentality. That that uh, perspective was also the preamble for their understanding of how to deal with the Israeli government. Uh, most of the interactions. Uh, while they were able to get in the door with Nazis like Heydrich and the Grand Mufti, they were also able to get in the door with people like David Ben-Grin and Moshe Charette. And Charette, who was in charge at the time of <coughs> Arab affairs, uh, took many meetings uh, with the Quakers, including Ben-Gurion himself. The Quakers were actually responsible uh, for proposing uh, some proposals for resolution for the Quakers, for the, for the, Arab, for the Palestinians. Uh, there was already agreement in, in uh, 1951 uh, in the 1950 and early 50 brokered by the Quakers where they were trying to uh, where the number on the negotiating table was close to 350,000 of the original refugees of 1948-1949 depending on how uh, you know looking at the numbers of uh, the aftermath of 48-49 we're talking about close to 700,000 the numbers 50% uh, vary between Benny Morris and Ephraim Karsh, but as far as the numbers go, the, ex the proposal itself was to take in that number. The only caveat was to accept Israel's right to exist in peace. And again, when the Arab world and the Palestinians rejected those offers, again, was another sign for the Quakers how this is not going to move along. We are not going to be able to influence the way one influence, and, and as much as, and they came across the same ideology uh, that has moved them along. Um, it was something that they had never encountered before. Um, they never had encountered refugees who wanted to stay refugees. And this was, this was profoundly confusing and disturbing to them. They had, they had, by that time, 40, 35 years, say, of experience um, with various refugees from around the world. And their orientation was, you give them skills, you give them education, you give them medical uh, backup, you give them uh, what relief aid is necessary, and then they go on their way, and you go on their way. Everything is, is the relationship is limited, and um, the, Quaker, the Quakerly way is, you know, a sense of human dignity demands that the refugees themselves get back on their feet and resume their lives. Um, this was not the approach that the refugees themselves wanted to take. And there's a, a, a wonderful, I mean, there are all sorts of exchanges between the, the Gaza field personnel for the AFSC and the Home Office. And, and with the, the, they're talking to the UN and they're talking to the State Department. So there's this one exchange in 1949 where uh, one of the AFSC personnel is reporting back to the Home Office saying there was a protest when a UN official came and they were holding the Palestinians were holding up signs saying, send us back home, compensate us, maintain us until we are refreshed. 
And I think this is marvelous, because I think that really captures um, the, the essence of the ideology, Palestinian refugee ideology, that had been fully formed in 1949. And arguably, things are not a whole lot different today. Um, the AFSC, the UN, uh, the international community, was then caught in, with, in between um, all the Israel, obviously, and the Arab states. The Arab states um, were very happy to consider accepting more and more and more development aid for their underdeveloped countries, which the US was beginning to propose starting in 1950, um, a sort of extension or, or based on the idea of the, of the Marshall Plan, that raising everyone's boats around the world, not only in the Middle East, but in Asia um, and uh, South America, would encourage um, Arab countries to resettle Palestinians. And the Arab countries were very happy to take the money, but um, they, they were quite adamant about not resettling um, Palestinians. And that was, you know, just to add one more point there, you know, to, you know is exactly where this, uh, this is where it feeds in nicely into UNRWA's role at large, when UNRWA takes, in, takes over the entire mentality, and with the mentality that is within the Arab world at large, that the refugees are there forever, as a symbol of the atrocity of 1948, i.e. the Nakba, and the Nakba mentality should remain the constant theme. I mean, the quote uh, that Alex, you know, colorfully quoted for you, I mean, it really is, you know, the, the ideology was already uh, cemented by 49. It wasn't anything that was going to change. Uh, and this was the disillusionment that the Quakers had. I mean, they were actually asked uh, by, UNRWA, by UNRWA, when UNRWA took over, by the first uh, Secretary General of UNRWA, um, Kennedy, who was a Canadian, uh, to stick around because they had the fieldwork expertise, you know, the population, you dealt with them, you know exactly what their needs are. And part, even if there was money on the table and there were different proposals, even though there was never enough resources, they, they basically said we had enough because they were so, um, they were so fed up with really, you know, everything that they came across with this fermented ideology that existed so much within within the Arab-Palestinian population that there was no way to change that. Uh, and every and every interaction they've had with the Arab leaders, even with the Egyptians and with others, all came to the conclusion this is going to be on, going on forever and ever. And in their final words, while they leave, uh, they say that this is going to be a, a problem that really is it has no end. That being said, if you know, as you know, as we've described historically, as time goes by, it has not stopped them from you know seeing disarmament and the threat of the Cold War and their involvement in the anti-war movement as part of the flagship of what they do. Uh, they also come to the conclusion as we go forward, and by the time we get to the 1960s and the, and the Six Day War, and then by the time we get to 1973, is that they do start seeing. Um, the Palestinian issue as a byproduct of this larger historical environment that's happening around. They're victims of that of that mentality, and there is uh, what is considered, you know, what I would, you know, we consider to be this kind of replacement theology that exists within this mentality, where the Arab Palestinians becomes the Jew, and you have this kind of flipped narrative of the David and Goliath, even embodied within the Quaker narrative. That that is. 
the really the uh, the background there for why they're now getting involved in BDS activity. The actual work itself ended in the 1950s, which was the preamble for their work. Now, since the 60s and onward, we've started seeing much more pamphlets coming out about understanding the right of return, the occupation, uh, and this was all done under their view of the world of Cold War threat, disarmament, and whatnot. Um, the, um, the one of the you know the heads of the Quakers, the leaders, the leaders in Philadelphia, Clarence Pickett, uh, used to be uh, picketing the White House, uh, you know, the anti-war movement. But then would come again to the White House dinners under Kennedy. So you would have that back and forth where he would still be, but he would still be invited again. Speaking to the cachet of the Quakers, allowed him to get in the door into all these places while protesting and pushing the ideology at the same time. Um, the, the turning point is really 1967. It's, it's the turning point for many for, things. For, for many things. Um, you know, the, the Quakers had been out of the Middle East and, and really not involved with the issues um, after 1953. Um, that's when the last Quaker personnel left left the region. Um, they sent a few they sent a few letters to the editor. In the uh, in the intervening years, but they um, they weren't really involved, um, and they became much more involved with uh, Cold War issues. They were central to the um, the anti-war movement in the nineteen in the nineteen sixties. They actually had uh, they sent medical aid and other aid to to North Vietnam, which caused a huge schism within the uh, the AFSC itself. Um, obviously a tumultuous time for American society as a whole. But they put their, you know, they put their bets on uh, what, what you could call a very conventional left-wing approach. Fortunately for them, you might say, 1967 comes along and their interest in the Middle East is rekindled. Their interest in, in the Palestinian issue is rekindled. They, as I mentioned earlier, they had um, built schools in Ramallah um, and also in Lebanon, going back, I think, in the 1850s. And so they have a, a small but significant presence in the region and in Jerusalem. After 1967, um, the, the, the region as a whole is really back on, on everyone's map in a, in a new and more significant and um, in 1967, late 1967, I think, the American Friends Service Committee, for whatever reasons, decides to make um, the, the Middle East, the Arab-Israeli conflict and the Palestinian issue, a full-time focus. And they set up an office in Jerusalem. And they send, um, they send a, a full-time person out there for the first time in um, 15 years. Um, that person immediately uh, starts uh, advocating on behalf of the Palestinians to the extent that uh, she is um, almost expelled from the country by, uh, by Israeli security. And it becomes a whole sort of diplomatic to-do. Uh, this is the way that they begin to get back into it. Um, the other way that they begin to get back into the issue is that um, they leverage their tradition of 
ecumenical relations with Jews, and they start doing uh, programs with American Jews, which are, as one might um, expect, dramatically one-sided. So um, Palestinians come in and harangue, uh, harangue uh, the audience and the Jews, look at under the aegis of the Quakers and the NFSC, and the, Jew, the American Jews are supposed to sit there and shut up and uh, accept this and uh, not say anything because they can't challenge the Palestinian narrative. Yeah, it's part of the whole 60s and 70s emergence of narrative and feelings as um, as important considerations for uh, for policy and the emergence of, of uh, conflict resolution as a as a separate thing as an entity as an ideology in fact and this continues throughout the the um, the 70s and 80s and but one of the things that, that this does because so much material is coming out of the AFSC offices in Jerusalem and in Philadelphia in the later 60s and throughout the 70s, this um, has, a, has an influence on American peace churches and the, and the Friends meetings throughout the country. And it begins to, let's say, convert the Quaker movement towards um, really a dramatic anti-Israel bias, for one thing. And it begins to inch the movement closer and closer towards traditional Protestant um, anti-Semitism in the form of replacement theology, sacralizing the Palestinians and their suffering, demonizing the Jews and their oppression. Things that um, the Quakers had explicitly avoided throughout. During the 1920s and 1930s, these were, of course, very important parts of Anglican theology and Episcopalian theology in the United States. Um, the Anglicans and the Episcopalians um, had, for one thing, very important uh, infrastructure throughout the Holy Land, and really all around the Middle East, far more extensive than the Quakers ever did. And they saw the um, emergence of Israel, Zionism, and then Israel as th theologically abhorrent and practically disastrous because it would it would undermine everything that they had been doing for by that time 100, 150 years. It's also um, important to know, just to interject one point. I mean, you know, those same individuals, which talks about really how the same kind of theology and ideology has cascaded. Many of the Quaker field workers and many of the individuals who were former Quakers uh, in the Gaza project um, joined the ranks of American academia. Uh, they became professors of international relations and conflict of, conflict of interest. They worked for the State Department. So, I mean, if you talk about the attitudes and the perceptions that existed as a result of taking these same individuals who had this entire uh, experience of field work and knowledge of their clientele, and they bring back the same kind of mentality to in academia. And obviously, you know, I'm sure everybody ever understands what's happening in academia today, uh, specifically regarding Middle East studies and poli sci and international relations, that there is this kind of anti-Israel attitude. These individuals came from that mentality. 
And so their experience there obviously has cascaded going forward. And at the time, obviously, we're talking about the 70s and 80s and the 60s, uh, there was also a, a much better uh, reciprocity going on between academia and as advisors to American foreign policymakers. And so you think about that reciprocity that existed, that also shaped American foreign policy. And so when you look at that, obviously, you're also seeing at the same period of time this hypersensitive focus, uh, specifically post-1967, on how tragic, and again, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the aftermath of the Six-Day War, um, highlighting the victimhood of the Palestinians, uh, the fact that we all need to like, help the Palestinians. This is all part of where the centrality of the right of return that is embodied within UNRWA today, and UNRWA already in the 60s, take a central point. The Quakers who were involved, uh, early on, bring that back to the table, and that all ties into the anti-war movement and to the, into the, um, the view of American foreign policymakers as the centrality of the Israeli-Palestinian dynamic, uh, specifically the Arab-Israeli conflict at large, but also how the Palestinians are a unique entity. Uh, and again, as I mentioned before, the fact that this was the first refugee population I've ever come across that never wanted to leave uh, and, and wanted to maintain their <coughs> refugee status has also caused them to believe that they, like UNRWA claims and has claimed when UNRWA was created as a special group within refugee populations, the Quakers take on and adopt that narrative as well because of their experience. I mean, it's, it's critical to understand how it shaped all of this and why they've been involved in all these activities as we've seen you know, today. Right, and, and, and today, um, Today the Quakers are, are very much smaller. I don't know the number of, of Quakers in America off the top of my head. Um, very much smaller denomination than, than they once were. Um, as are all the peace churches, as are all of the Protestant denominations really uh, across the board, the non-evangelical denominations. Um, the hostility towards Israel um, and theologically towards Jews has increased in um, the so-called mainstream Protestant denominations um, tremendously in the last generation. Largely, I think, under the influence of Palestinian Christians um, uh, who uh, come out of uh, particularly um, Bethlehem and Nazareth, series of Protestant institutions there, which had been set up originally by American missionaries um, however many decades ago, um, which adopt uh, very doctrinaire sorts of uh, supersessionist uh, beliefs um, and liberation theology beliefs. So there's a kind of cross-fertilization, you might say, with, um, with 1960s Catholic, uh, uh, Catholic thought, which has then in turn gone back to the um, Protestant, the mainstream Protestant denominations in the UK and in the US, which has gone to, into um, Quaker ideology as well. And for this reason, um, we see Quakers adopting um, BDS as a central, as a central um, activity, as, as a central intent. They ostensibly uh, promote a two-state solution, but the essence of, of BDS is, um, is a one-state solution, a, a, a Palestinian-dominated state. 
the, uh, the AFSC partners with um, a variety of organizations, not least of which is Jewish Voice for Peace, in running uh, a BDS summer camp. Uh, is that July? June, July? July. Uh, you can send, join, you can join send your kids, send your grandchildren um, to that. Um, and the, the, so the story arc is that um, the Palestinian refugee issue has returned once again full force in the last two or three decades to, um, to the American Quaker movement. And their small experience, small, significant, and very positive experience uh, in Gaza, giving, providing relief more effectively than any other organization before um, or since, far more effectively than um, contemporary organizations did. Um, the International, uh, International Red Cross, the League of Red Cross Societies, uh, vastly more efficiently and effectively and uh, honestly than, than UNRWA um, has for the last 60 years. But the episode never left them. It, has, it was internalized somehow within the DNA of the, of the organization, the issue. Um, and it has helped in some unquantifiable way to engender a great deal of hostility towards, towards Jews and especially towards, towards Israel. Um, and the, I guess the last question is how much of this qualifies as actual anti-Semitism? Um, when they were in the field in 1949, 1950, um, there were individuals on, on their staff who, who seemed to have had questionable beliefs. None of those people are around anymore, can't really, can't really question them directly, but they, they didn't, some of them didn't like Jews, whereas some of them really made the effort, so far as we can tell in the, in the documentation, to be fair, to be positive. Be Quakerly. To be Quakerly. Um, and certainly since 1967 and the early 70s, attitudes, Quaker attitudes have, have changed. Now, at the same time, it, it is some possible somehow, I don't know how, um, for, and, and it's, which is very much a characteristic of American religion as a whole, personal religion, for Jews to be Quakers and for Buddhists to be Quakers. Um, it, it speaks to the sort of erosion of religion generally in American society, the categories and concepts, and you have this smorgasbord sort of effect. Um, but that's how they also see JWP as Jewish Quakers. I mean, so that also explains their understanding of Jewish involvement. Uh, and I mean, and to Alex's point, you know, just to, you know, to interject as well, I mean, those intimate relations in the 50s uh, were, you know, uh, were more sincere, uh, but the politicization later on and where we are today, you know, had, we, we have seen uh, through history and we, are, we have seen evolution through the documents that we have unearthed, uh, basically that, you know, today you could call it plainly more anti-Semitic than it was early on, whereas early on there was an attempt to become neutral, pacifist, and fair to all. Uh, but you know, today you know we, we have so we, we you know without a doubt 
Uh, you know, as Alex mentioned, you know, really, you know, we know that BDS is anti-Semitic by nature. It has all, of, you know, while it's being sold as legitimate criticism, it is not. I mean, all the tenets to go exactly with the BDS movement. Uh, you know, there is, uh, and even when you, when there has been these queries with the FSA today, there has been what, why are you supporting BDS despite its nature? They will refer you back to where they were historically. We've always supported peace and uh, peaceful interaction, and as a result of that, that's why we're supporting it, because I see it as a mechanism, again, tying into the um, kind of anti-war disarmament narrative of putting pressure to resolve conflict, and that's how it's seen and internalized within their circles today uh, when they are supporting such issues, putting out pamphlets about the occupation and the centrality of the right of return, all of that uh, feeds into this internalizing the centrality uh, and the fact that not, something needs to be done about it, and BDS is the answer if you want to make it done um, efficiently, effectively, and now, uh, which is really how uh, I know it's seen. That's probably as good a place as any to, 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 to stop and see if there are questions. Yes, ma'am. So, who, who is actually funding the Quakers? Are they self funded? And are there programs self-funded uh, with, with a shrinking um, Quaker population? Um, some of it, uh, the, the, the BDS camps, um, some of it is for foundation money, uh, the connection with the JVC. Uh, the, way, the way the money is being funneled, uh, it actually it goes through JVP, uh, and they're actually funneled to the AFC as a contractor. Of this. So I mean, we have uh, I mean, we have looked at quite. I forgot, you know, how the kind of tracking the money on these issues. Um, but uh, a lot of it is for foundation money that used to give in the past, and now coming back, uh, private donors, um, Palestinian sympathizers. You know, there's, there's a lot going on related to that kind of activity. Uh, also, uh, individual donations. I mean, people you know who support the, who are Quakers are giving. Um, again, as we've spoken about, you know, that the AFSC itself, uh, these kind of uh, town hall meetings and these committees are the worshiping, and, and that's the actual um, worshiping activity in itself. Uh, the fact that they can do something about it has also generated monies. Um, interestingly enough, you know, to that end, um, you know, because of how they saw the, the, the call to action, the severity of things in the Middle East, uh, many of the people early on were uh, were business individuals and other people who were uh, who left their businesses in order to support uh, the Quaker cause because of the they could do that it was a time it was the right time and many of those families still continue to give um, you know in Philadelphia and obviously you know uh, in Pennsylvania many of the colleges you know which is how the archives from Swarthmore to Bryn Mawr to Haverford are all Quaker schools and so they have established. Uh, uh, large endowments uh, that have been helping support some of these initiatives. Please. When the Quakers left Gaza in the 1950s, had they bought into the Palestinian right of return? Because it sounds to me like the fact that they were prepared to leave. At that point, they no. Didn't no. Quite At that point, no. And that, and How that's did a, that turn? Well, that, that's, a, that's an interesting point. Um, when, they, when they left, um, it was a headquarters. It was a headquarters decision. 
Um, the field unit in Gaza, which consisted of several dozen individuals, had, um, had expressed its sympathies with the Palestinians since then. They had, to some great extent, um, adopted the narrative of their, of their charges. Um, and it's interesting that they wrote a letter to, uh, to the, the head office saying, we feel strongly about these issues. We sympathize strongly in, in all these ways. But we feel that, that we have to go, because we have to leave, because it's not Quakerly to, to stay and to in, in continue the, uh, the process of just giving welfare, which would um, deepen the moral degeneration, is the term that was used, of the, of the Palestinians. This letter was then leaked by the headquarters and showed up in a, in a statement um, read by uh, the Secretary General of the United Nations. Um, when did they go full war right of return? They didn't write about these issues very much in the fifth, later 50s and into the 60s. But by the later 60s, and I, we, we wrote this thing for um, the, it's called The Tower, it's an online magazine, we went through all the, the different um, publications. By the later 60s, certainly by the 70s, they had adopted the right of return implicitly, and now it's very much explicit in the last uh, 10 or 20 years. And that was the turning point, really, 67, uh, for, on many events, and the fact that, that you know many of those individuals came back you know, when they got involved in academia and others, I mean, that's where the adaptation you know, really takes um, Full fledged, but really, when they left, they were mostly left because they felt, you know, as we've mentioned, you know, this disillusionment is not going to be resolved. This moral denigration, all of that was, uh, were symptoms. Uh, but the adaptation of the right of return really, you know, takes uh, late sixties, early seventies. Right. The whole idea of the right of return among Palestinians has also has developed and been articulated and rearticulated over the last um, you know, sixty years, and that's all. That's a very interesting kind of separate separate concept about who's influencing whom and when certain kinds of language is is influenced uh, is implemented along the way. Um, please. Um, when the Quakers met with some of the Israeli leaders, um, how is it that they were never able to understand that there was billions of dollars of world aid going to the Palestinians? Well, there wasn't. There wasn't. At the time, it was. There, well, even, no, even no, since, OK, no, that's even an important, since that's then. an important point. And that, when they met with Israeli leaders in 1949, 1950, really up until 1953, um, had a case, sporadic um, the, the UN's programs for the Palestinians were massively underfunded. Massively underfunded. And to the tune of, uh, you know, of, of programs were going to be terminated because they didn't have a few hundred thousand dollars. And monies were reprogrammed um, from other UN funds just to get to keep things, keep things going. What we see today, billions of dollars, I mean, under has a billion dollar budget, or thereabouts. That is, that developed over time. And, um, the, the resources that were available at the, at the very beginning were tiny, tiny. But my question is that 
how can the Quakers, or anybody for that matter, perpetuate this whole BDS thing and this whole uh, you know, squalor uh, refugee situation when they've been given trillions of dollars and it's all being diverted into weapons against Israel? And it's never arrives to lift their status. That's a symptom of today. And it's not just today, it's like not, at least well, 30 years. The ideology, well, what happened, you know, if you look back, I mean, again, you know, going back to Regina's question, I mean, the issue uh, of the money, I mean, <coughs> UNRWA, UNRWA, when UNRWA took over, was created as an Article 22. Article 22 are, uh, are dependent on voluntary contributions, and also, also means really not much oversight coming out of the General Assembly, if at all. Uh, and so the monies that, were came, that came into dealing with the Palestinian issue uh, were also predicated on UNRWA uh, taking entire responsibility for the Palestinians. Uh, but, you know, the Arab world promised them millions of dollars as long as you are the gatekeepers of this problem, and we're going to pay you kind of guilt money. Obviously, they don't want to take them in and, and accept them as citizens. But we've seen, you know, in the first few years of UNRWA's existence, they tried to maintain some level of neutrality and, uh, and fairness, but when they realized it depended on money, then you see this transition to becoming a full-fledged advocate of the Palestinian cause. Right. And, and UNRWA that, itself runs, runs a relatively um, efficient operation for what it does. It, 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 UNRWA itself is not especially corrupt. Monies that go to UNRWA don't get diverted the way the monies that go to the Palestinian Authority do. That's, um, you know, but UNRWA runs a gigantic series of operations that cost hundreds of millions of dollars a year because they're running schools, they're running hospitals, they're running social welfare um, networks in one, two, three, four, no, or five different countries. Is, how can they be, how can they justify this ideology or status as a, as a refugee when they're getting so much money? Because they're victims. Because they're victims. It's the only population of refugees worldwide that has that you can be a refugee for life. I mean, UNRWA is uniquely defined a refugee from 1946 to 1948, and their descendants. I mean, and we have you know, Alex and I have over the years. I mean, we've done a lot of work on UNRWA. We have written and we've shown a how, but a slow, a slow but gradual expansion of definition. Um, According to Islam, you can only, you know, religion is defined by the thought by the father. There's been a slow expansion to expand to the mother. I mean, basically, at the rate we're going, you know, everybody's a Palestinian. And what's happening in the West, and the reason the U.S. funds in the tone of close to 240 million dollars annually without special request, is based on the amount of clientele. If the clientele continues to grow, we're paying more. And so it's the only population where there's an inflation of numbers or a decrease. I mean, there have been approximately 145 million refugees since World War II. All have been assimilated with the exception of one population. There was a calculated um, uh, decision to make that happen. And, and all of this plays into the narrative and these early NGOs that have been able to maintain them in that position because of the political agenda. Unlike UNHCR, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, which was mandated, and even UNRWA in its early mandate, not to get involved in politics, UNRWA today has become a full political advocacy wing for the Palestinians. There has been, I would argue today, that UNRWA today has basically become a shadow government for the Palestinian Authority. There is, you know, all the services that the Palestinian Authority should be doing, 
you know, they're double dipping. They're getting money for the PA, money for UNRWA. It's all happening. And while UNRWA officials will tell you we were going to leave when there is resolution for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, they are the gatekeepers of the one thing that perpetuates the conflict. And that all ties in very nicely into that entire model. But why, but why don't the Quakers um, accept this, recognize this, uh, acknowledge this, whatever? Um, I think it's. I think it simply comes down to the fact that the Palestinians are are victims. That that um, that's the the central defining feature of of Palestinian people of, of their experience. I don't mean to diminish bad things that have that have happened to the Palestinian people over time, but. All of the all of the rest, Palestinian terrorism, Palestinian self-governance or or not, Palestinian um, autonomy, all the kinds of things that that Quakers in the 1940s and 50s would have been very concerned about from the point of view of uh, self-sufficiency and dignity and again their term moral degeneration. Um, all of this has been thrown thrown um, out the window. I think some of it is explicable in terms of the, the general <coughs> ideological orientation of the or organization since the 50s, and certainly since the 60s, as a very conventional left-wing point of view. There are victims and there are oppressors. There are good guys and there are bad guys. Westerners are the bad guys. Israelis are Westerners in this in this uh, scenario. Um, everybody else um, really can't do very much wrong, and and money and every terrorism and all of the facts of the matter don't matter. Terrorism um, doesn't matter. They're all excusable. No, 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 not not at all. I mean, you you look at uh, Quakers excuse terrorism. Sure, sure. Well, yeah. Historically. Yes. They don't talk about it a lot today, but back in the 70s and through the 80s, when when these were sort of much more uh, front burner issues um, with the PLO and other Black September and other organizations, yeah, you have to understand what their approach again, as expressed through the publications, and that's the only way we can understand it at the moment. All these years later. Their approach is, well, you have to understand the, 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 the lengths that people will have, have to go to sometimes to correct injustice. And justice, justice is, very, is a very important thing, but justice is, a, is a, an ever malleable kind of concept and construct. And um, so uh, in the name of justice, people do all sorts of things that... Um, may or may not be so good. But don't they ever examine the way the Palestinians are uh, oppressing themselves by the, their Hamas leadership and Fatah leadership? Hamas leadership is the, is the officially elected. Right, but they're, they're oppressive to their own people. It's irrelevant to their narrative. It's not, uh, I mean, H Hamas has been able to, I mean, Hamas today actually. Uh, steals under goods that are given for free of the Palestinians and sells them to the Palestinians. Right. So they, they use an but again, this, this, is, this is something that they, 
that in the Quaker view, so far as we can understand it, again, from reading websites and talking to, talking to people, from reading their documents, they may not condone some of these things, but they understand them. This is, these are things that happen because of injustice and oppression. And, that's, and that covers a lot of sins. Please. Yes, can you give me a citation from an actual Quaker publication which states that they want to remain refugees. They want to, uh, a publication today or no, historical? No, a publication at any time that can be cited by me or anyone that the, the, uh, the reason that they left originally, or however it's phrased, is because they ran up against a population that desired to remain as refugees and they had We, we didn't bring an actual copy of our book. Yes, our book. Yes, yes, our book. Yes, our book. Yes, our book. In the book. In the book. It has all the books. Yes, two words to that effect. Yes, yes. Well, we have, in the book itself, if you get a copy of the book, and the documents going, in the, in, the, in the original documents going back and forth from Philadelphia to Gaza, those kinds of sentiments are all there and those languages there. Taken from, Quaker Taken from official Quaker AFSC documentations uh, on, on, on Quaker letterhead sent from Philadelphia to Gaza. So, so why doesn't that get cited over and over again now by various Well, nobody know, this story that we are telling to you today, this, the Quaker story, <coughs> is one of the less well-known stories ever told. People know about UNRWA, people know about the Palestinian refugees, and the, the, this 18-month project that existed in Gaza, where you know, which is a small, which is a small part of history, is not as well known. Uh, when we go and we talk about this around the country, and even more so now with our book out, people that even in the quick were even involved in the project, and so it's. But the but the, you know there. This particular telling this particular story is is new and original. We like to think that it is. But um, at the same time, we hope so. We hope so. Um, this this issue of um, recognizing that Palestinians historically stated that they wished to remain refugees um, in the absence of full of full repatriation to their homes in, in Israel. There are there are documents. There are interviews. There are statements to that effect um, that are. All over the place. I don't understand. It's an endless series of Jewish organizations who are consci consciously trying to get the message out to con counteract the fact that Palestinians are victims. Well, that's and none of them utilize what this kind of information, which well, in my problem is stopping from being victims. It doesn't. No, that's not true. If you're a victim that wants to remain a victim, then that's part of your problem. No, if you're if you, no, if you're a victim who believes that justice will only be served by um, by the full restitution of what you see as and your allies see as your um, irrevocable rights, then then you are in. A special category. No, if you're a victim that wants well, to destroy Israel and cites that all the time, then that's a whole different issue, and it should be presented that. The other part, the other part of the issue, which is not, which is not widely known and not spoken about, we talk about the 
resolution for the Arab-Israeli conflict is the fact that the land issue is secondary to the fact that Palestinian identity is basically synonymous to Palestinian refugees. And many of the groups out there that talk about resolution, there is a, there is a greater focus on the land issues than on the identity issues. And to understand the victimhood mentality of the Palestinians, one needs to understand how entangled Palestinian refugees is within Palestinian identity. That is to say, that to say about the Palestinian, you are no longer a Palestinian refugee, meaning you're no longer a Palestinian. And even, you know, remarks that are made today by the PA going to of late this Mahmoud Abbas saying, you know, who am I to tell somebody that he does not have a right of return? that was made maybe three weeks ago in the, during these negotiations with Kerry. And other comments along those lines are emblematic of that exact sentiment. And the amount of backlash that he got from people who continue to lead organizations in the Arab world promoting the right of return will tell you that time after time. And that is what needs to be understood. And that's your what's message, lacking from the conversation. Your message is very interesting. And it should be proposed or, or presented as the major message. The Palestinians are not victims. They are aiding themselves in becoming victims. Israel has become the victim of all of this. And that's what should be presented. The well, media and me message is completely wrong and keeps getting reproduced over and over again. Look, if you, if you go back to the 1950s and you look at arguments about these issues, um, about uh, who created the Palestinian refugee problem, how many refugees were there, um, what, would be, what would be ways to um, uh, resolve the, the issue. All of these kinds of discussions were had. Um, and the American Jewish Committee was, was involved, um, the Israeli uh, Diplomatic Corps was involved, various commentators were involved, and these, th at a certain level, there is nothing new under the sun. We added in a, a couple of interesting details, but all, all of these arguments, all of these issues have been out there since the very beginning, and people hear, unfortunately, hear what, hear what they want to hear. And the, hear the parameters are... They what the media presents to them, and they buy it. That's what they the, the media, the media are, is a separate issue. You know, um, and why that is the case is, is very much a separate, That's what a I separate issue. It's not a separate issue. Yes, sir. The, the impression I get, <coughs> they, they were, the Quakers were kind of weak on, on the Soviet Union. So are, are they the tip of the leftist spear in America on, on, on Zionism and Israel? Did the, well, I, wouldn't call them the, I wouldn't call them the tip. Um, look, in the, they came at it from their their religious orientation and their and their pacifism, and they've moved much more towards a conventional left wing political orientation, which which has um, anti Zionism as a central uh, as a central focus, and they've picked up more. Um, conventional um, Protestant anti-Semitism along the way. Uh, where they fit into the, the constellation of groups and, and activities um, is an interesting is an interesting question. I think arguably they're not all that influential in, in many respects. 
they're certainly not as influential as they once were in the 1940s and 50s. They don't have the same following. They don't have the same numbers. They don't launch huge campaigns and get major world religious leaders to sign on, um, and, and so on. What they do still is grassroots activities. Um, and through the various meetings uh, spread around the country to which the AFSC provides materials, um, they are they are influential. But um, charting out the, the the whole constellation of, of anti-Zionist, anti-Israel, and also anti-Semitic groups within the American left and the American right, um, we would need a very large whiteboard about the size of this wall, and it would be a, and it would be a terrific exercise. Um, that and a couple pots of coffee and some Danish, and we're ready. We're ready to go. Maybe a martini or two. At least, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thanks.